This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions via email, via live phone calls. Uh, text messaging, however you can give it to us. We're happy to receive it Uh, for the next hour. If you have a question about something you've been studying in the Word of God or an issue in your personal life or ministry that you'd like help with, if we can respond biblically, well, by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone. You can call us locally at 525-1859. We have people who listen through the Internet. And uh, our Internet users here in the United States can use our toll-free number if they wish. It's 877, the call letters, WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at net. Rick, as always, it's good to be here today, and let's go ahead and we'll get started. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a number of questions that have uh come up and we've actually got a live caller. We always give live callers preference, so let's go to them first. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Carl. It's Steve. Hey, Rick. Hey, good morning. How can we help you, Steve? Um, My question is about the uh, holy and fallen angels. Yes. And about how can we know the point in, in the past when the holy angels were sealed and then so they... So is it correct that they can't they can't fall and make that decision anymore? They're sealed forever now, and and of course the angels don't have the plan of salvation that we do. So could you just talk about how when maybe that happened or how that happened? It's a great question. Um, Christians, evangelical conservative Christians, take two positions in reference to when the actual fall of angels take place. Some would argue that in the creation account, all that God made was good, and indeed it was. It was very good. Uh, but with that said, they would would argue the point that, well, if that's true, then angels were created in the same time frame in the six days of creation. And therefore, uh, they uh, were created and their fall took place sometime after that. That's one position. Um, Certainly, I think you can hold the position that in eternity past, uh, before God even created the heavens and the earth, that there was a rebellion that took place in the heavenly realms and that what Genesis is referring to is not necessarily the creation of angels, but the creation of the world system as we know it, and uh, man as uh, as he unfolds it for us. In either case, there is a point in time when, when angels rebelled against God. Uh, we know that Lucifer uh, 
whose uh, name is given as such in the King James Bible. There, there are, by the way, for those who are maybe new to the Bible, two central passages that deal with the fall of angels in the Old Testament. The Revelation also highlights uh, the fall of angels, but there are two, and the way to remember them is 14 times 2 is 28. So you have Isaiah 14, and then you have Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, you really see a picture of what the evil one's heart is like. Uh, five times he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he seeks to raise his throne above the throne of God. He seeks to uh, express his will instead of seeing God's will done. And so he's called the morning star, O star of the morning. Uh, that's an interpretation of the uh, Hebrew word, uh, halal meaning shining one. Um, the uh, King James just renders it O Lucifer, son of the dawn. Uh, and again, what they're doing is they're giving the name. One is giving the interpretation of the name. In either case, it makes no difference. He rebelled against God. When you come to Ezekiel chapter 28, you see again what he is described like. And Ezekiel 1 through 10 is giving a warning to the king of Tyre, who uh, basically uh, claimed to be God, uh, but of course he was just a man. And when you come to verse 11, there is a change that takes place in the chapter where he moves from uh, this man who's a king uh, to someone who certainly cannot meet the qualifications of a human. And so Ezekiel says some things that couldn't apply to the human king of Tyre. And it's clearly a description of the evil one. Uh, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onks, the jasper, and so on. Uh, on the day you were created, um, he's described as the anointed cherub who covers. Uh, you were in the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So again, this is describing uh, one who, unlike the king of Tyre, was created in absolute perfection. And he's not describing Adam. He's describing the anointed cherub. And this cherub rebelled against God. He took with him a third of the stars, one of the uh, Hebraisms used in the Old Testament to describe an angel. A third of the angels rebelled against him. And so those angels that rebelled against God are called demons. Uh, those angels who did not rebel against God are described as holy ones or the other term used as elect angels. Uh, they are indeed confirmed in their state. And so there is no redemption uh, for angels. God originally prepared hell, Jesus said in Matthew 25, for the devil and his angels. So hell was never prepared for man. It was, re it was prepared for, for the devil and his angels. And of course, uh, the question sometimes comes up, well, why is man redeemable and angels are not? And the Bible doesn't specifically say, but I think we could make po some possible conclusions. Um, when man fell, he fell in a universe where evil was already present, where Satan had already rebelled against God. Uh, when Satan fell, he fell in a universe. Again, angels, by the way, are persons. They're not people persons. They're angel persons. 
And so when God describes angels in the Bible, like human persons, they have intellect, emotion, and will. And when angels fell, they fell in a perfect universe. And God, because of that, I think, chose not to redeem them, but he chose to offer man grace. Now, that does not mean that uh, angels are not accountable. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that the church, the body of Christ, will actually be involved in judging angels. That's just a quick answer, but I have a course uh, through the Institute of Biblical Studies on angels. Uh, angels for us and angels against us. And uh, you could study this whole issue in more depth. Let's go to our next caller. Indeed, we do have another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Berge. Good morning. Um, recently come under a little bit of fire for my views on the family structure. And it's it's my belief, and I believe it is scripturally based that Christ is the head of the family. Uh, the husband should come under that as a protector and provider for the family, and the wife as a manager of home and raising the children. Uh, not that I'm against a woman working. I have nothing against that at all, but it's just, it's just my belief. And I just wonder, Pastor, if you could expand on that scripturally to, I mean, if I'm wrong, I don't think I am, but if, if, I'd, I'd just like to hear your views on this. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Uh, God and Christ are unfolded not only in Paul's epistles, but in the Gospels and in the Old Testament as being equal. Jesus is no less God than God the Father, and yet the Son submits to the Father. Uh, Christ's head is God the Father, just as a woman's head, uh, a wife's head, uh, Gunikos here, is her husband, her man. And so with that said, the Bible affirms the equality of men and women, but in doing so, it does not erase the roles that we have. God has some things for men to do, and he has some things for women to do. That's true in the home, and that's true in the church as well. That's why the ordination of women to be pastors is a new idea. And generally speaking, if it's new, it's not true. Um, And there are women who are forsaking uh, a different call that God has given them and a different focus that God has given them in the church and in the home because there's been more and more gender blurring in the day that we live in. And in some evangelical churches think they're very progressive by ordaining women pastors and women who are quote unquote ministers in their church, but they're actually being very destructive to God's order and to the family and to the church and that they are by replacing male leadership with female leadership in certain areas, uh, they are feminizing the next generation And so there's a growing problem amongst young men who are being very much uh, feminized in the churches they're being raised in. And that's not a healthy picture. And if I were a dad, I wouldn't want that for my sons. Uh, But a lot of dads today are just oblivious. They don't know what the Word of God teaches. And so, again, the man is the head of his wife. And Paul says in Ephesians 5 that he is the head of the home. Again, if you have two heads, you have a monster. If you have no head, it's dead. Someone needs to lead. And so wives are to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. 
And so men are called not to be dictators, but to be loving leaders, to love their wives sacrificially. Uh, But they are nonetheless to be leaders. And so where does a child learn to respect his teacher in school? Where does a child learn to respect officials and government? I I saw last night on the news some clip out in um, the West Coast of hundreds and hundreds, thousands of teenagers on spring break. Uh, initiating a riot. They were drunk. They were throwing rocks at police. They were turning over automobiles. It was just out of control. No respect for the government. Just rebels at heart. Well, with the breakdown of the home, these are the kinds of things that we can expect. And with role reversal in the home, these are the kinds of things that we can expect. And so uh, a child learns to respect his teacher in school, uh, ecclesiastical authority. He learns to respect uh, the governmental authority in the home, the smallest microcosm of life. Uh, For a woman to be a worker at home is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because she is there to raise her children. And so in Titus chapter 2, Paul, when he describes what older women are to do in the church. And this is something that older pastors or younger pastors are not to do. And we have forever ignored this principle in their scandal after scandal in the church where pastors begin to disciple quote unquote younger women uh, on a one-on-one basis. And because of that, they have created real problems, real scandals And so God gives a a clear order to Titus, who's a young pastor. And he says, in essence, in verse two, Titus, you're you're to train and disciple the older men. Um, He says, Titus, uh, you are to train and disciple the the younger men. Um, Titus, you are to be involved in, in those who are under the realm of slavery. Um, And he gives all these different categories, but then he makes it very clear. He says, Titus, you are not to disciple the younger women. You train the older men, you train the older women, you train and disciple uh, the bond slaves, but don't you train the younger women. That's something older women are to do in the church. Uh, So when older women are given the instructional um, process that they are to take younger women through, he says older women um, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. You obviously cannot impart that which you do not possess. So there's certain qualifications. Just because a woman's older doesn't mean she's mature. I meet older women who have never matured, who are babes in Christ their whole life, and it's sad. Uh, And they miss a real impact on the next generation. But they're to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? That they might encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Well, God's word is being dishonored today because the next generation of women are not um, hearing from older, mature women, some who maybe teach out of their failure and some who teach out of having done it, but they're not being taught what they are supposed to be. Uh, When a uh, couple, and by the way, he's giving here an ideal setting. He's assuming 
the woman is married. So I'm not talking about the exceptional cases, a woman who's a single mom or divorced against her will. He's assuming she's married because in the list, he says she's to be taught to love her husband and to love her children. There's an assumption here that they are married, but the man is to be the provider. That doesn't mean a woman cannot necessarily earn money. Um, But if she does it to the neglect of her children, then she is in violation of Scripture. And if she does it to the neglect as her children grow and leave the home, if she does it to the neglect of her being able to have time in ministry to the the next generation, then then she has a distorted role. Um, So the Proverbs 31 woman is not, you know, a real estate agent or everything else that people want to make her into she's a woman who out of her home as her home base through a quote-unquote cottage industry as we call it in uh, 21st century language she is using that as a platform of ministry and of the opportunity to help provide and care for her family but when you think of a a woman I know it it sounds old-fashioned for her to be at home and to raise her children but that's the center of discipleship And so really, women's ministry should be done through this lens. It's not that you're just teaching Titus 2, but when you approach a passage of Scripture, it's done through the lens of Titus 2. And unfortunately, the day that we live in today, most women's ministry doesn't meet this. And you have women Bible teachers who are teaching just like men. And a lot of of women are very open to it because they sit under pastors who aren't opening the Bible. And so they just want to learn the Bible. So I understand their frustration, but don't abandon uh, the role of ministry that women are to have as it's modeled and specifically commanded in the New Testament letters. Anyway, it's a great question. We could spend more time on that, but if you want to uh, possibly... Uh, listen to my series in the book of Titus, I think that might be extremely helpful to someone today. And they can go to searchthescriptures.org, and those are all downloadable on your computer or through your phone apps. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener was looking online and found that the dying of the Easter eggs has its traditions from a pagan custom. He's wondering what your opinion is about whether we ought to be following this Easter tradition. Well, it depends, um, you know, what culture you're dealing with. It is true that in some pagan cultures, they dyed Easter eggs. Uh, The Orthodox um, Church, which, you know, began around 1000 A.D., Uh, they began to dye eggs. They say it originated with them, and they built, Uh, the dying of eggs around the resurrection of Christ and the new life that he brings. That as an egg opens up and there's life, so the tomb opened up and Christ came out alive. And so when you go into Eastern Europe, you will see amongst the Orthodox Christians a tradition that's been carried on for over a thousand years, the painting and dying of eggs. So it depends who you're talking to and what you're talking about. Uh, sometimes Christians get so hung up on terminology that they become ineffective uh, in the culture in which God has placed them. Some don't even want to use the word Easter, and they argue, well, it has pagan origins. 
Well, I think you could argue that the word does, but with time, words change. And so in the 17th century, interestingly, the uh, King James Version translates the uh, Greek word Pascha for Passover as Easter. Why did they do that? Well, they did it because uh, that communicated in that generation. Uh, When we speak of Good Friday, we don't usually say, well, we're we're celebrating Passover. We don't say that to the average non-Christian. We just say, well, we're celebrating the death of Christ. But we really are celebrating the Passover. Uh, The Passover lambs that had been sacrificed for hundreds and hundreds of years, beginning with the exodus from Egypt— all pictured uh, the ultimate Passover lamb. Paul will say Christ our, Pas- Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He was in the Old Testament um, typology of the Passover. In fact, uh, he dies on Passover. Uh, the sinless son of God is in the grave on the feast of first, uh, excuse me, on the feast of unleavened bread. And he rises from the dead on the feast of first fruits. And 50 days later, he sends his spirit on Pentecost. And so the first four feasts of uh, in Israel's seven feasts uh, were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. And the last three feasts are going to fulfill his second coming. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, the trump will sound, the dead will rise, Christ will appear, he'll catch up the church. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles, where he rules and reigns for a thousand years. The Feast of the Atonement, when the Jews will look on him whom he has pierced. All, all these are going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. Uh, in fact, some will take and argue that when Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 5, now it's to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, um, for you know the Lord will come. And so he speaks of times and epics, two different words there. Um, but while some would, and I think you can argue it, um, while we, no one knows the day or the hour, we know the season. And if indeed Christ follows the same schedule for the first coming, uh, where he literally fulfills the first four feasts in that, you know, Israel celebrates the, the spring feast, that he will come in the fall of the year and fulfill the fall feast. That's something to think about. Let's go to our next caller. Two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero or email us at tbl at net. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. How you doing, Mr. Carr? Doing well, thank you. How can we help, brother? Um, I hear people say, um, I'm seeking after the Lord, I'm seeking after the Lord. Is that scripture or not? Uh, there's not a a verse where someone says, I'm seeking after the Lord, but the Bible speaks about seeking the Lord with all your heart. Um, so the concept uh, is is definitely a biblical concept. Uh, when you seek me with all your heart, God says you'll find me. Um, so that's a biblical concept, and we are to seek the Lord uh, in the sense that for salvation, that's the first step. Uh, seeking God religiously can save no one, but someone must call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. They must believe and trust that his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to save them. We call that justification when God declares righteous, eternally forgiven, 
the slate wiped clean and Christ's perfection credited to their account. We call that justification. That happens when a person admits their spiritual bankruptcy, that they can do nothing to earn heaven, and they trust what Jesus did by his death and resurrection. But the truth also applies to the doctrine of sanctification. At justification, we're declared righteous. In sanctification, we are becoming more and more righteous. One speaks of our position. The other speaks of our practice. God has declared us as holy. Now God's will is that we become holy in our daily experience. How does that happen? Well, by seeking the Lord. How do we seek God? Well, first and foremost, through Scripture, through prayer, and through the fellowship of the local church. We are not to seek him independently of one another. Uh, Some Christians think they're so spiritual that they don't need the local church, that somehow they can uh, seek God on their own. and, And they say, well, I just have church in my home and uh, you know, in, in God says, no, flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So uh, that's what we're to pursue. That's where, what we are to seek. I hope that helps. It's a great question. I appreciate you asking it today. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. Or you can email us at tbl at net. Uh, we have another listener, I believe, that's ready to go on the line. So let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Nope, I guess we didn't get them in time. But let's go ahead and read one that was sent to us from a listener uh, from Rinkin. Toby would like to know. Uh, oh, there they are. Um, let's try them again. Are you there? Call her. No, nope. I guess they left a voicemail. So ah. we'll come back to their voicemail. And you can do that, too. We'll All take right. your questions, however. But let's go to where uh, Toby from Rinkin, Georgia, sent yeah. in a question. They've been attending the same church for 20 years, from age 13 to 33. Uh, she and her husband feel a call from God to find a new church home. It's not the easiest thing to do because, of course, it's so easy to get caught up in looking at things like, do they have a good kids program? Do we like the music, etc.? What are the important things to look at when visiting and considering a church to become a new home? Also, is it appropriate to speak with the pastors and ask questions to be sure they're in line with the biblical church? If so, what would be some good questions to ask? Well, that, that, that's a great question. Well, you begin with their view of Scripture. Do they believe in verbal plenary inspiration? In other words, do they believe that every single word in the Bible is inspired and authored by God? That's a critical question, and you can no longer just go by the doctrinal statement on a church's website because uh, they can, one, say they believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but they mean different things by that. Some very liberal will say, well, the Bible's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired, Uh, or they'll say, uh, well, we believe in biblical inerrancy. And what they are doing is they believe in what's called functional inerrancy, like the cooperative Baptist movement. Uh, They're deceptive at core. Uh, They are not ascribing to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, There are many liberal mainline denominations now because they don't want to lose their members because they've lost so many. Uh, to Bible-believing evangelical churches. And those people should have left because they are involved in a church that is using their money and their hard-earned tithes for something that's less than honorable to the Lord. But they will sometimes say, well, we even believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. 
But what they mean by that is functional inerrancy. The Bible in its function to lead you to Christ or to help you to live for him is inerrant, they would say. And what they mean by, quote unquote, being led to Christ is something often different from what the Bible espouses. In either case, their view of functional inerrancy is different from the view that Christ had. So they would say on the historical and scientific issues, um, the Bible, you know, may contain error or wrong things in it. So, uh, one, make sure they believe in verbal plenary inspiration, that they believe every single word without mistake. You want to obviously search their doctrinal statement. Again, you can't just go by what's on their website or what uh, they may have posted for a hundred years as a church. You could go to a PC USA website today and it looks very evangelical, but that denomination has not been evangelical for 40 years. In fact, most of your conservative Bible believing Presbyterians left and they started, you know, the PCA Presbyterian church in America um, in defiance and in obedience uh, in defiance to their liberalism in an obedience to the word of God. So you want to make sure, uh, you know, do you believe in the virgin conception of Christ? Uh, and sometimes the way to ask that is you could, you can ask it because um, these guys can really be slick. Hey, do I have to believe in the virgin conception to be a member of your church? You know, is that really that important? And if the pastor says, oh, you, you don't have to believe that. You can believe whatever you want. Then then, then you're getting to the core thing. But if, but if he knows you're quote unquote testing him, he'll use language to get around it. So they can use the same language and mean entirely different things. There was a pastor in Hilton had some years back who said he believed Jesus rose from the dead. And what he meant by that is Jesus didn't literally physically rose from the dead, but he is rising in our hearts as we have a Christ-like love for people. Uh, That's sheer nonsense. Um, Or they'll say he's coming again. How is he coming again? To judge the living and the dead? Well, the God's not a God of judgment. He's not going to really send anyone to hell. And so what they mean by that is he's coming again and that society can become more Christ-like and can embrace its values. Actually, the Bible teaches in the end just the opposite is going to happen. So probe them a little bit on the essential doctrines of the faith. Beyond that, start with preaching You know, uh, it's unfortunate we live in a day where expository preaching is fast disappearing, but it's pretty difficult to grow um, on a pastor who doesn't open the Bible and teach from the Bible. And if you're raising your children, you've got one slice of time to raise them. I think of a family that lives on the opposite side of Hilton Head, and they drive all the way to Buford every week uh, because that brother told me years ago, he said, I'm just hungry for expository preaching and I'm raising my children. And I, I look, it's the Lord's day all day. So I'm just going to make the drive. Uh, Sometimes there's a cost involved in our day to find a healthy church. You want to see if they're involved and engaged in reaching the lost in world missions. So missions locally and missions worldwide. Typically, if a church has lost its evangelistic spirit locally, they won't have a passion worldwide. It just doesn't happen. So missions begins at home. Uh, You know, are people ever being saved? Uh, Even beyond biological conversion. By biological, that means the members, uh, children who are coming to faith, are they reaching out? If they're not, they won't be a spirit-filled church. Um, And then this is a little more difficult issue, the issue of worship. 
certainly uh, there's different forms of worship, but ultimately you have to look at at function. Uh, you can have different styles of music and still be biblical. Um, but function is what's more important. Are they coming to worship the living God or are they coming to entertain you? And there's a big difference. You know, I went to church not that long ago when we were on vacation. I couldn't even hear myself sing. Uh, I couldn't hear anybody else sing. The, the music was so smothering. Uh, it was very difficult to worship the living God. Why? Because they had chosen an entertainment format. And all the lights went low and it sounded like a rock band. Um, and it sounded more like the world, but they would argue, this is what we have to do to reach the next generation. Okay, so we had, we adapt the world's methodologies to reach the world? I think not. When you do that, you don't see the kind of fruit that really pleases the Lord. So um, that's a starting place. You could go online. You could maybe find out some of these uh, questions. But certainly, a meeting with the pastor is essential. In fact, I would think a meeting with some pastor in the church would be expected if you're ever going to join because that pastor has a responsibility to have a regenerated membership. And if he's never met with you and spoken with you, either in a group setting or a one-on-one setting, he or some other pastor, if it's multi-pastored church, uh, then how does he even know whether you know the Lord? Uh, And so some of the questions he would ask you would be very revealing as well. But you should be able to ask him anything you want. And if he doesn't want to answer, don't waste your time. Go to another church. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, sir. How are you doing? My name is Joseph Simmons, and I'm from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And um, I'm calling to address a situation that's, that's, that's deeply concerning me. It's, uh, it's about divorce. Um, as far as my understanding, um, it, we are allowed one wife and or one husband, you know, uh, uh, for a wife, I mean, you know, and um, I see a lot of remarriages in the church, and a lot of pastors aren't addressing this crucial subject that could hinder us into entering into the kingdom of heaven. So I was wondering, what is the, the your, your Bible take on divorce and remarrying? And are we supposed to just have one wife and one husband? Well, it's a good question, and if you go to my website, uh, searchthescriptures.org, I have a message uh, Jesus, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> Jesus and divorce. Or you could go to my series on Malachi and in Malachi 2.16 and the exposition of Malachi and Malachi 2.16, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. And I interface that passage with other New Testament passages that the Lord addressed it. And there are four central passages that deal with the subject of divorce in the New Testament. One's found in Matthew, one's found in Mark, one's found in Luke, and one's found in Romans 7. John doesn't address the issue. And when you put those passages together, it's very clear what Jesus told the Pharisees that when they asked him on the question, he said, well, haven't you read the scriptures? You know, a man leaves his father and cleaves to his wife and the two become one and what God has joined together, let no man separate. So God's ideal is one man, one woman until death breaks the relationship. That's the only honorable way to sever a relationship. But we're sinners and people sin and people fall 
and uh, people, you know, come and find Christ as their Savior, and they bring a lot of baggage with them. I'm meeting people in their 20s and 30s that some are already on a second, some are already on a third marriage. And marriages become like dating. You know, you tire of one woman, you find another, or vice versa. And uh, the whole idea of a commitment only to be broken by death has been lost in our day. And sometimes the church fosters that because when we choose leadership in the church, we don't take seriously the model that God has created. Uh, A pastor, an elder, a deacon is to be a one-woman man, literally, the husband of one wife. And that would exclude a divorced person. And it's not because God's down on divorced people. If you reach the culture, you will soon discover that you're going to have a lot of people on second and third members, uh, marriages in your membership. That's the reality of the culture that we live in. And very often divorced people are very open to the gospel because some of them are buried over in guilt and they're looking for forgiveness. Uh, and so like the tax collector and the prostitute, you don't have to convince them that they have a problem. They know they have a problem. And so sometimes you'll discover that if a church is very evangelistic in this culture, that you will have more than 50% of your people who are in second marriages. And that's certainly true of our church. Um, but again, what do we do with that? Well, you can't unscramble eggs, as Billy Graham used to say on this subject. Uh, Once a second marriage or a third marriage has been instituted, you can't undo it. Um, It is there. It was not initially right, but it is there. And you cannot undo it. And so I had a gentleman who came to me one day and he was on his second marriage. He was married the first time for three years. Uh, He divorced his wife, went into a second marriage. They had five kids, started reading what Jesus said on marriage and divorce. And he said, should I divorce my wife and go back to my second? Well, my first, uh, divorce my second wife, go back to my first. No, God forbade that in Deuteronomy 24. Otherwise you have a legalized form of adultery. That's an abomination. Um, and anyone in that kind of a setting that then God's will would be for them to separate. Uh, if, if they, uh, unfolded that kind of scenario. Anything God said is an abomination in the Old Testament is still an abomination today, whether it's a man lying with a man or whatever it may be, man lying with an animal. It's the same thing. It's still an abomination. But most people are not in that kind of a setting. Uh, I've only met one person in my whole ministry uh, of uh, 35 plus years who had gone back to their first wife uh, after breaking a second marriage. But most people are just in a second or a third marriage, and it becomes the will of God for them. And as I told this man, I said, look, you, you, you can't, you only compound the sin by saying, well, now we're going to divorce because we're not supposed to, um, you know, be married. I said, you can't do that. You know, you have five children with these, with this woman, and you need to be faithful to her. And you need to, but you need to be able to deal in integrity and in honesty with your children to be able to say, God's will is very clear that it's one man, one woman until death severs the relationship. And uh, I I miss God's best. Um, And so that's the short answer. 
I suggest you go and listen to my hour-long message. Or more recently, you could go to our Romans series. I've been preaching through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And I mentioned Romans 7 is one of the central passages that deal with this subject of divorce. Paul is um, using the permanency of a marriage relationship to help us to, uh, to understand our relationship to the Old Testament law. And so he says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. So if her husband is alive and she is joined, or you could translate it as some translations render married to another man, that's the thought, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she be joined or married to another man. So Paul is affirming what Jesus taught, that only death is to sever the marriage relationship. So uh, listen to my message. Go If you go to searchthescriptures.org, click on Romans. Um, you can click on Romans 7. Uh, in fact, I think I preached just the first four verses in that hour-long sermon. And you could listen to that. And I look at this text along with other passages in the Old Testament. Good question. Let's go to the next one. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate you guys. I, I call probably, uh, you probably recognize my voice by now, but you shouldn't have this show because I like to ask questions and find out things I don't know the answers to. And uh, I, I'm going to I'm gonna call unless y'all tell me not to. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to find out about um, how, uh, I see a lot of this in the church. I'm really big on um, Christians loving each other, forgiving each other, being long-suffering with each, with each other. Um, that's what that's the kind of church I read read about in Acts when it started, when the church started. Um, I, I see a lot less of that. I see people that get upset with each other, Christians get upset with each other, and, and they're so quick to want to just, I call it, throw, just throw somebody away because they offended them in some way instead of trying to work it out and a lot of times, and I've experienced this, even though the person um, has offended somebody and they try with all their heart, they try with everything that they have in them to make it right, the the, the offended uh, Christian just, just wants absolutely nothing to do with them. And it's very hurtful. Um, I understand. I've experienced this. I really have. And it's, it's a tough thing to go through. Well, good, 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 good point. Do you want? Do you have a specific question, or you want me just to comment? Yeah, I just want you to um, let me know what you think, because I value your opinion about. Well, um, I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. It's a, it's a good comment. Um, let me just say that uh, you know, there's no perfect church, and even as you read the Book of Acts, while you do read descriptive passages that describe a deeply committed and loving church. You also find some passages where it wasn't always perfect. Uh, in Acts 6, there's a dispute uh, in that there are some widows, for instance, who are being overlooked. When you come into the New Testament letters, you find some churches that are extremely healthy, and then you find some churches that aren't so healthy. Uh, you read the first Corinthians, you read uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthian church had some problems. Uh, he, he says this, um, 
I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. He's describing them when he first came to them and planted the church. And as new Christians, he didn't give them deep, meaty truths. He just gave them milk truths because they were not yet able to receive the heavier truths. But then he says, indeed, even now, about four years it transpired, you're not yet able. For there is still uh, jealousy and strife among you. And so he says, you're, you're, you're fleshly, you're carnal, you're acting like mere men. So um, you're, what you want to do ideally as a pastor of a local church is you want to shepherd your people in such a way that if a heart is willing and wanting, they can move out of immaturity into maturity in Christ. I don't believe you can do that apart from feeding the saints. Uh, I think a pastor needs to open the word of God and the spirit of God and preach it. And God will use that to change lives. But there's always going to be aspects of carnality in any church, even in the healthiest of churches, because we are a collection of sinners and we have people who are at different places. So sometimes people come into your church and they've been saved 20 years and they bring with them a lot of baggage and sometimes a lot of carnality and sometimes a lot of callousness. And those people are really difficult to move off the dime sometimes. Others, they're they're in a carnal state because they've languished in infanthood and they've never been fed. And you start opening the Bible and their life just begins to take a dramatic turn. I love it when we get someone from day one, they're one to Christ, and you can begin to nurture them through, say, our discovery class and through the Sunday morning sermons. And they can avoid a lot of the pitfalls and mistakes that other Christians run through. But two, there's a progression of growth. You know, sometimes my wife and I, we're, we're in a discussion. I'll say, well, he's just kind of a new baby Christian. Or or she might say, well, you know, he's he's an adolescent Christian. You know, adolescence can be, or he's a teenager. And, uh, you know, and, and they kind of go through that whole process where they maybe want to arch their back and show their authority. But again, they get through that and you help them and you love them. And, um, but we are certainly to forgive one another just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. We could spend a lot of time on that, but if you want to explore it in depth, you might want to go to my Back to Basics series, uh, which is our discovery class, our 45-week discipleship class on Sunday mornings. But in the Back to Basics series, I have a message on fellowship in the local church. And that, I think, would be very enlightening to this caller. Anyway, uh, let's go to the next caller who's waiting. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Thank you very much. I, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And uh, I just I heard the conversation earlier about the subject of divorce, and I have to say that the pastor was wrong. Because uh, according to the Word of God, a man that marries a woman, that's his wife forever. And if there's a divorce uh, and she goes and remarries, of course, that is adultery. And also, if the man goes and remarries, that is adultery. So anyone out there that's married twice and three times, they need to end that relationship if they want salvation. It's just that simple. Um, well, it's a good it's a good God is married to us, God said so he's married to the backslider. You know, he's gonna, he only wants us. He wants, he wants us. We cannot marry two and three times. It is against the will of God. If you are married all right, all right. one time, you must end that relationship in the name of Jesus. All right. Well, let me respond. Give me a chance to respond. And again, I, I was not advocating second marriages. And if you go and listen to the message I suggested, 
you will understand my heart when you give a two to three minute answer on the air that needs an hour long answer, then I will usually reference a tape or a message that I've done. And so you go back and you listen to the Romans 7, 1 to 3, where I explore this issue. Jesus said to the woman at the well, uh, you've had five husbands. He didn't say you only had one. He said, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. So in even making that statement, while he is not going against what he taught concerning God's ideal, he recognized that she had had multiple marriages, uh, that those men were really her husbands. Um, that didn't make it right. The, one of the reasons the Apostle Paul had to um, say in reference to picking leaders in the church that he must be the husband of one wife, the Greek text literally reads a one-woman man, was not because he was giving, as some would say in our day, a prohibition against polygamy. Because polygamy was against the law in Rome as it is in America as it is in most countries of the world, though there is an African culture that recently legalized polygamy. But in most cultures of the world, because of the social problems it brings and the complications it brings, and because the law of God is written into our hearts and we know innately that polygamy is wrong, it's against the law, as it was in Rome. You didn't have polygamists. And so when Paul speaks of the husband of one wife, he must be the husband of one wife. He's recognizing that the church is filled with fractured people, people who bring baggage with them and people who are sometimes on their second and third marriages and they have to come clean. They have to deal with that. But again, there are some things that you cannot undo. And so you're a pastor, sir, and you have some man who's on his second marriage and he has four children with that woman, what are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him, well, you need to go divorce your wife? Uh, Well, if that's what you think, I mean, you can tell him whatever you want. It's a free country. But as I search the scriptures and people know me and I'm committed not to watering down the text or making it palatable to people, I would say to him, look, what you've done is evil. It's wrong. You need to ask for forgiveness, and God can give you a fresh start. Now, that does not become a basis or an encouragement for a second marriage. That would be like me saying to a woman who's had an abortion. Yes, God can forgive you. You can ask God for forgiveness, and he can forgive you and cleanse you. Um, You can be free from the murder that you helped bring about as you allowed some doctor to exterminate your baby. Well, she's not going to reason, well, I guess I can just go out and get pregnant again. If it's a problem pregnancy, I can just get another abortion. She's not going to reason that way. No, the grace of God becomes an impetus to say no to ungodliness and to say yes to what is right. And I know people who have been divorced, some even against their will, and, and they refuse to get married again because they recognize that it's not God's best. But Jesus in Matthew 5, um, the two parallel accounts in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 where divorce is mentioned, he said when a man divorces his wife, he causes his wife to commit adultery. How do you cause your wife to commit adultery? Because he was basically encouraging her in that first century culture, as in many cultures of the world today where women find a sense of security through a husband, the provider, to go out and get married again. 
Um, and again, God meets people where they're at. But again, it's a free country. You're going to have to search the scriptures for yourself and come to your own conclusion. Let's go to the next question or caller. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Thanks, Pastor, for taking this call. You're welcome. Uh, Pastor, I wanted to get your opinion on proms. And I have uh, My wife and I have talked about it, our kids are at that age, and uh, I do have my reservations about it. I remember what dances were like for me uh, when I was coming up, and um, I'm just against putting my kids through that experience. But the other argument is, well, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You don't want to deprive them of that memory. So uh, I'll just hang up and listen to your Hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. I, I didn't get the question. I thought you said something about the Psalms, but I'm sure that's not what you said. No, sir. Uh, Proms. Oh, prom, a prom. Oh, yes, I got sir. you. Okay, yeah, good, good, good question. Um, it, it, it's an interesting issue. We, we live in a day where proms are a place where uh, a lot of young people lose their virginity. And instead of it being a healthy experience, it's, it's a very negative kind of thing. And uh, the culture, you know, feeds on this. Uh, a lot of these proms, uh, even at local Christian schools, there is planned after the prom an all-nighter somewhere. Uh, I've heard even in Christian schools, quote-unquote, where um, the kids have been brought to someone's house and the parents let them drink because they say, well, they're going to drink anyway, so let's do it in a supervised way so no one gets hurt and all kinds of wicked things happen. Forget the quote-unquote Christian proms. Then you have on top of that your secularized proms. And here's the thing, and here's the principle, and I'm not going to legislate a rule, but I will give you a principle that as parents, we're called to guard our children and to protect them. And you have to ask an answer for yourself, is dating even ever right? And I, I do think you need an avenue where kids can meet each other. Uh, and an ideal setting in which to do that is to bring a couple families together. So if your son says, you know, I really like so-and-so, and invite their family over and uh, give them a chance to get to know each other. Sometimes bubbles are popped, and they find out, oh, this girl that I was infatuated with is not what I thought she was. Or, and it gives them a chance to develop the relationship. Hey, you can, um, we, we, we allowed our, our, our son, um, Jordan, who's now married to a girl that he fell in love with when he was young, um, to go on some dates, but his brother Jameson was in the back seat, and we still laugh about that, you know, to this day. It was a supervised setting. So you make no provision for the flesh in regards to its evil desires, and you do all that you can to to promote godliness, and you, you don't just want to fall into some of the world's traps. So let, let me just give some general principles to start, and we could spend more time on it. But unfortunately, we're out of time, uh, but... I want to invite you this Sunday, if you're listening, you don't have a place to go to Community Bible Church, I'm going to deal with the subject, The Real Noah. Uh, this new movie that is out is just uh, has a litany of error and some heresies in it. 
Um, but again, you know, that's what lost people do. You don't expect lost people necessarily to produce, you know, biblically founded movies. Uh, but it does present opportunities for the body of Christ as people discuss the movie. Uh, to give some open doors uh, into the gospel. And so if that would help you, I invite you this Sunday, we'll be looking at the real Noah here on Palm Sunday. Well, I hope you have a good day as you continue to search the scriptures because in them you will find the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a great day.